Mark chapter 4. We're going to be at the very end of the chapter, um, starting in verse 35. A very, very familiar story. Last week, we uh, took a, a moment to stop and look at the beginning of chapter 4, specifically four parables that, that I think are clusters of teaching from Mark on the kingdom of God. After all the opposition to what Jesus was doing, um, Mark throws down what you and I can expect, what the disciples can expect in the kingdom and how it's moving its way through the world. And here we have in the end of chapter four, a very, very familiar story that basically asks two questions. And to be fair, all of Mark's gospel is asking these two questions. Who is Jesus and what is faith? If you want to just boil the essence of a teaching down, that's what Mark, the, 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 uh, the apostle, is doing here. Who is Jesus and what is faith? I understand. Uh, I was standing in the back way. Most of you are coming in, and I know it's Mother's Day. I love this. I love how you love your moms, and, and there's a whole bunch of people here, and that's really thrilling. It's possible, just possible, that this discussion about Jesus um, is going to feel like a little bit of a rub because to some, they've concluded uh, what they think about Jesus is he's a historical figure, good man, moral teacher, yada, 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 but he isn't who he said he was. He says he's God. And, and to some of you today, that's going to feel like a little bit of tension because that's how he presents himself. And that's exactly what this story says. That's the question the disciples ask. There's another aspect to this um, story, and that, that is the aspect of, of the issue of faith, specifically um, for our trust and our a belief in God to kind of come and go like tide, you know? There are really good days for us, really strong days in what we believe and believe what God will do for us, and days we wonder where he is. That's our inclinations, right? And, and I get how it happens. We live in a fallen world. Let me just put that in another vernacular. There is sin in the world. There's sin in you, and there's sin in everybody else. And when all that sin starts bouncing around, you have all the ramifications of what that sin can do to each other. And then you add to that the human condition that we're just weak. We, we don't have um, all the things necessary to deal with all the circumstances we find ourselves in. We have limited understanding, limited power. And, and you put those together, and there are moments in times where bad things happen. We, we put them in the scary category. I, I'm not comfortable at all right now. And what, what happens at that moment of faith is we get pushed down to the essence of what we say we believe. Do we really believe it in difficult times that Jesus is Lord, Lord of all, you sang it, and is he in charge of this situation? Well, I believe and that, that, in essence, happens to everybody. I told you, because of sin, because of our weakness, you put them together, you have this problem. And so there is a time coming. It, has, it hasn't happened yet. It might happen where something happens and it shatters your world. It's just more than you thought you could bear up under. And I get that. And so the questions start happening. What do you believe now? I mean, when we talk about Jesus and we talk about salvation, whatever you think about that word. We talk about life eternal. We talk about having sins forgiven. In, in a context where everything's hunky-dory and we're smooth sailing, maybe that's just an easy addition to what you currently think. But when everything falls apart, when bad things happen to you, what do you really believe then? And I suppose if there's ever any story that kind of plays that out for us, this, this among these other two that we'll see in the next following weeks, the story of the storm that Jesus calms helps us see that. And so um, I think there's a, 
there's a way to put these stories in perspective. I call them perspective stories for a reason. Because sometimes when those bad moments happen, here's what happens to us. We get so close to the trouble that we can't see God. The problem is bigger than everything else. And we think we need this and we need that. We need this. We need that. And, and God is there, but, but we don't perceive him because we're so focused on the, on the issues at hand. And like every other narrative story in the Gospels, there are two constants. One is people and the other is Jesus. So let me help you see how we're going to deal with this today. People have always been the same. I mean, I know they dress different, but their tendencies to doubt, their, their inclinations to fear, their lack of understanding, um, their limitations are true of ours. We just have maybe more sophisticated ways to demonstrate our fear and limitations, but they are the same. So we're going to look at those folks, the disciples in that moment, in that storm, and see what comparisons we can draw from it. And then we're going to look at Jesus, who never changes. Jesus, the Jesus to them is the Jesus to us. And so what, what can we learn from those particular things? And so let's read the story, um, unpack it, and uh, make a couple observations about really what's going on. And then I'm going to just compare and contrast uh, Jesus and then the, the disciples to us. So let's read it again. Um, I'll read it in verse 35 to verse 41. Now, let me give you a little context. Uh, if you back up to chapter 4, verse 1, it says that he began to teach beside the sea. That was a technique for Jesus to survive the crowds. The crowds were so pressing on Jesus that they, the Sitting in a boat out in the ocean or out on the sea looking back at the, at the shoreline was the best way to control the crowds pressing in on him. And it was a great way to communicate, like a natural amphitheater. It's after that day that we end up in verse 35, and it says this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, let me talk through the events here um, so we get this total story. I used to think that it was just the disciples, a handful, a small handful of people in a boat. That was the picture. This is like a small armada. There is a group of followers of Jesus in many boats traveling across this, this according to Matthew, he calls it, he calls it a sea and the crowds, like I said before, were very press, uh, pressing in on him. He's very popular, loved his teaching, loved the healing better. He was ministering to people. He was exhausted. Super busy day. Let's go to the other side of the, of the lake or the sea. Matthew, Matthew calls it a sea. It's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, to us, it would be a lake, you know, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. Um, in comparison, we, we call Lake Superior a lake, and it's 350 miles long and 170 miles wide. And you might conclude, well, how could any storm in such a small body of water ever bother anybody? Just swim for it. And 
And yet what you understand about the topography in that area is you have this, this Sea of Galilee at 690-some feet below sea level and mountains at 9,000-plus all surrounding them. The heat rising from the valley, the coolness coming from the mountains created storms daily there, and they were notorious for, for severe afternoon storms. Okay, So that's the scenario that, that they're in. The boats that they have, I used to picture a rowboat. This is much bigger than that, 12 to 15 people. More than likely, they belong to Peter and, and Andrew and James and John, the fishermen. That might have been their boats. And so they're big enough for Jesus to be asleep at the stern and many, many people in, in the boat. And the text tells us that a great windstorm came up, okay? The, the word for windstorm in the Greek is seismos. It's where we get a, the word seismograph to measure the, the effects or the power of, a, of an earthquake. So uh, of all the words the writer could use to describe how big of a storm it was, it's a seismograph storm. This is a big storm, an unusual storm for them. Huge waves, waves crashing over the boat. The boat is becoming swamped. And here in the rear of the boat, Jesus is sound asleep. He is probably really, really tired for one, but probably more intentional too, and I'll make a point about that in just a little bit. But verse 38 tells us really how bad that storm is, where it says, he was in the stern asleep on a cushion, and they woke him, and they said to him, teacher, do you care if we perish? Now, I don't want you to forget who these men are in the boat. Uh, some speculate that up to six or so of these apostles had fishing experience, and clearly professional fishermen of them were the leaders of the group. If anybody knew how to handle the storm and handle that lake, if anybody knew what to do in a crisis like that and how to survive a situation like that, my guess is these men did. But they concluded we're going to die. Something about this storm was so unusual to all the storms these grown men had seen over many, many years that this is a serious, not, not normal circumstance, and we're clearly going to perish. And so they say to Jesus, don't you care? You've communicated love and, and compassion towards us. Don't you care that we're going to perish? And so Jesus wakes up and says three words, peace, be still. Now, that sounds like a very, like, biblical way to calm down the storm, but that's not really the way the word renders. The word in the original language was be muzzled. If you want to put it in modern vernacular, it's shut up is the word that Jesus used, not to the disciples, but to the storm. In fact, it's kind of a present active verb, so it means that he said, be quiet and stay quiet to the waves and to the wind. That's how Jesus responded after being woke up from a sound sleep. By the way, it's the same, the exact same word in chapter 1, verse 25, when Jesus spoke to the demon and the man, he said, be silent. His authority over that demon and over evil was the same thing, be muzzled. Be muzzled and stay muzzled is what Jesus said. He says it again to the to the storm. And the amazing part of this story is that as fast as this storm came up and as devastating as it potentially was, it went immediately calm. And you have to get this. It was a supernatural stillness. It wasn't like, oh, the wind starts to die down and the waves begin to slosh themselves to sleep. It was huge, then dead. It was obvious. It wasn't, no one in that moment, in that boat, could have said, oh, the storm came and went. It was just a quick little squall, and we're fine. It was a supernatural event, total calmness. And in that position, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he asks two questions. Why are you afraid? And in essence, don't you have any faith? Those are the two questions that, that Jesus asks. 
And I suppose they're important questions if you know that the disciples have been following Jesus now for many months, watching him take blind people and having them see and crippled people walk and demon-possessed peoples be free and, and doing all these wonderful things. And he looks at him, are you still clueless on who I am and what I do? Do you not believe in me at all after all that you've seen and witnessed? And that's, that's what Jesus points here. And, and in verse 41 um, is an interesting conclusion to this story. He said they were filled with great fear. Okay, now this is an escalation in fear. I'm going to die fear was in verse 38. I'm afraid of him fear is in verse 41. It's a very interesting uh, escalation in this fear for them. As afraid as as they were of the storm, they were more afraid of this man who controlled the storm. And that is the story. And it ends in verse 41 where they simply ask a really great question, a poignant question, a question every person on this planet should ask. Well, then who is this guy? How is it possible that this man can stand and say, be quiet, be still, and it obeys him? Who is this man? So with that kind of as a launching point, this story into what I want to deal with today, I'm going to just look at him, Jesus, who is this man, we'll answer that question, and then look at us and our inclinations to respond like the disciples and see if we can make some connections here. Here's the first thing that I think is true about Jesus, I might have skipped it in the text, but is this, that Jesus is faithful to lead us to and through places we would never choose. You, you might make the mistake of thinking when Jesus said, let's go to the other side, that that was just a bad moment on his part, bad planning. He had no idea there was going to be a storm. I suggest to you he knew exactly. Just like he knew how to control the storm, he knows how to start one. And this was a planned moment by Jesus. Um, it was an intentional teaching moment. And, and what I want you to get, what we got to get out of this particular part is that Jesus wants the best for us. He wants the best for his disciples. And sometimes, listen, sometimes it includes storms. Nobody picks that stuff. Nobody in their right mind would go, Father, would you please give me some difficult stuff? Would you swamp my boat a little bit? Because I need to believe more. Nobody picks that, but Jesus does, because he knows that we do better, not in smooth sailing situations. Like spiritually speaking, it's when our faith gets tested. When we get the weight put on us, what comes out of us shows what's in us, right? Some people make the mistake of thinking that circumstances shape us. And I suppose at some little angle they do, but more than anything, they reveal us. What you believe, who you believe in, how will you hold on is determined not when everything's cool and copacetic. You don't even think about it. Our inclination, our human inclinations, when everything's cool and everybody's healthy and our pockets are full of money, God is an afterthought. As soon as crisis come and sickness come and need come, we hit our knees and say, God, don't you? Don't you know that I'm perishing here? There's a direct intention of, of Jesus to know exactly and precisely what he's doing with our lives. And he loves us so much, so much, that for our own good, he takes us through difficult things because he knows the conclusion of it is deeper faith and trust in him, and you get to watch him work. And that's better, and that's good, right? The other thing that's true about Jesus in this story is that he is um, this duality, fully God, but fully man. And so because he's fully man, he fully understands our weaknesses. Um, every person has had a scenario like this where um, you sit down with someone and you start to tell your story. Maybe, maybe it's a current position you're in, some kind of burden you're carrying, and there's some very therapeutic, very healthy thing that happens to us when we, 
when, when, when we're understood, right? When we start to talk to people and share our concerns or our fears or whatever, and people just listen to us or, or they have a common experience. And we walk away going, well, that, that, felt, good. that felt good. I feel better. I feel like I can process more clearly because someone sympathized with what I'm going through. Now, if that's true, man to man, how much more exponentially is it true that God, the God of the universe, gets so close to understand what you're going through? He knows when you're tired. He knows when you don't think you can make it. He knows when you're scared. He knows how weak we are. He knows when you're discouraged. He knows that stuff. He understands your weakness. So don't think that there's this God, this picture of God that someone's perpetrated, that he's a distant, far off, only concerned with his agenda. He is concerned with you and specifically with your story, and specifically the details of your story and what creates fear in you. Our God came to this world, took on flesh, so that he could sympathize, so that he could know. And here is Jesus, exhausted, in the back of the boat, sleeping, so he gets it. Here's the third thing I think you see from this, and it's the obvious one. When the disciples conclude that he calmed the storm, they said, and I think it was a question, I think it was more of a statement, who is this guy? Not like we're confused at this moment. Who can calm a storm? Who can say to wind and wave, stop, and it supernaturally dies? Who can do that? God, right? No one's confused on that. And so that's the reality of Christ. He's not only man, he's also, he's also God. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 9. We went through Romans a year ago. But you should have this kind of grained in your mind where Paul said Jesus is God over all. He's not pulling any punches. He's not hiding behind anything. He is who he is. He is God. That's who he's declared to be. He said in Philippians chapter 2, the very nature of God. John, in the beginning of his gospel, said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus, in Hebrews, it says that all things were made through him, and he holds it all together by the power of his Word. That's who Jesus is, right? Mark 4, 35 to 41, is just simply an object lesson. These are the absolute biblical truths of who Jesus is and who he claimed to be. You want proof? He calms the sea. He says to natural things, do as I say, and they obey. Only God could do that. No one but the creator of the storm could say to the storm, do what I tell you to do. No one but the creator of the sickness can say to the sickness, stop having its effect. No one but the creator, a God of the universe, can say to demonic forces who want to destroy people, come out of him. Only the creator of sight can make blind people see. That's who Jesus is. That's who he claimed to be, and that's what he proves. He is God. And I suppose if I stopped right here and said nothing else, what I want you to do is look at me and seriously ask the question, who do you think he is? It is not okay, and just you can do this, I suppose. It is not okay to live your whole life thinking you've got more time to answer that question when you have not any more time than he decides that you have. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation, and you have to face with what Jesus said of himself. You can call him crazy. You can discredit him. You could say this is a lie, and he convinced a whole bunch of people to believe it. You could say that, and then you're on your own. But if you think there's any validity to the truth that Jesus can speak to waves and wind and say, do as I say, then you have to deal with who he is. He's God. Come in the flesh. And he didn't come just to calm storms on seas. He came to resurrect dead people. Take sinners and make them live to forgive us of our sins. That's the reality of who Jesus is. Do you understand? One other thing that is obvious in this, that is that Jesus cares for us. James uh, said this about trials. Consider it pure joy. 
as strange as it is, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, when it's finished its work, will make you mature, complete, not lacking anything. Who would invent trials to grow us but him? And why did he do it? Because he cares for us. I wouldn't choose that. He does. He does it because of his perfect knowledge and because of his perfect love. And uh, I know this. I don't pretend. I don't pretend to know what you're going through, but I do kind of generally know this. If there's a thousand people in this room, everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a burden. I do know that. I'm not naive. I have enough one-on-one conversations to hear some of these stories, and to be quite fair, they overwhelm me sometimes. Because I'm just a guy, but what can I do? When I hear of somebody's husband who died tragically a year ago, what can, what can you do with that? A mom with two kids left to manage on, on their own. What can you do when someone gives you a diagnosis of cancer? That was somebody I prayed for this week, a young mother. That just, what do you do with that stuff? What do you do when you lose your job and you have no idea how you're going to take care of your family? What do you do with all those things? And here, here's what I want you to get, okay? You just got to lean into this part. Please remember that Jesus heard their cries and they didn't drown. Embrace that. I don't know what he might be doing in his work in your life, all the particulars of the weight that you carry. I I don't know all the individual pieces of what God and his sovereignty is doing to shape you and make you like him, but I do know this, you will not drown. (laughs) That's a good reminder, right? He is a good God. He cares for us. So let's, uh, let's learn some lessons in the 15 minutes we have left about us, okay? So if if that's true, always true, revealed in this story about Jesus, what do we learn about us from the disciples in in this particular story? Here's the first thing I spotted anyway, was that we have a tendency to cope in our problems without our God. That's our inclinations, right? I, I might be speculating a little bit here, but I can just see these really tough, hard fishermen looking at this storm coming over the horizon going, we got this. This is what we do. All we've ever done is fish this lake and these storms come every day and we know what we're doing. We, we know precisely where to stand and who grabs what ro- uh, oar and when to take the sails down. We know what to do. We can cope with this stuff. Um, that's probably what was going on. And I think, to be honest with you, we're, we're just like that. We exhaust ourselves with our man-made solutions to our problems, and we run out of time. And I get it. I'm sympathetic to it. By nature, I'm a mechanic. I really am. I prefer just to have, you know, wrenches and fix you, like make it better, make it better in my life. Just this and this equals happy, right? And that isn't how it works, really. And sometimes we try to manage our problems when what we should be doing is asking our Savior. And, and sometimes the storms last longer simply so we can run out of energy so that we'll ask our Savior. So if your storms last a long time, you're a stubborn fool, okay? Just between you and me, all right? Here's the second thing I learned from the disciples is our tendency to panic. The disciples panicked in the storm, so what do you do in your trouble? What is it that you do? How do you respond? 
in the scriptures, the, the Savior commanded us, do not worry. That was the first sermon he ever gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not worry about your life, what you eat, what you wear. Don't worry about that stuff. God's got you. That's what he says. It's an imperative command. It's a command from God to say, worry is sin, okay? But what do most of us do instinctively right out of the box? Worry. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? How's this going to turn out? That's what we do. We instinctively worry. The natural human flinch is to hit the panic button. This marriage is difficult. Divorce. That's what I do. That's what I do. Hey, th- this sin thing, sin always has two parties in it, by the way. You don't sin much alone, but if you sin against somebody else, everybody sins against each other, and what typically happens here is to say, you know, I'm a victim. Somebody else's fault. I know what I'll do. I'll give my sin a name. I'll call it disorder so I don't have to deal with it. That's what I'll do. Panic. Escape. And I think the disciples demonstrate that to us. I think it also shows us our tendency to doubt. Not only panic, but doubt. We're just like them. We would, um, and maybe have even said this thing to Jesus before. Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care what I'm going through right now? Don't you care about my circumstances? It kind of goes like this. If you want to draw a line through it all, it starts with the problem and the crisis. And it goes to us trying to cope and trying to manage it apart from him, right? And in the midst of managing it and the panic and all that, we forget the promises of God. And then somebody comes along who cares about you and reminds you of the promises of God. And what's left is doubt. So when you hear someone say to you, hey, don't, don't forget God promised to never leave you, forsake you. You go, I don't feel that way. I feel forsaken. I feel like nobody, nobody cares about my circumstance. And clearly, he must not know me because it's harder than I ever thought I would have to deal with. Someone comes alongside and reminds you that he would never take you through any temptation that you're not able to bear up under. And doubt kind of fans up us as well. Then he lied. Because this is more than I can bear. And sometimes somebody would come under the midst of a, of a crisis in your life and and say, hey, don't, don't forget he loves you and he really cares for you. And, and what screams out inside of you is, I don't feel loved. This doesn't feel like care. That's what happens in us. It's interesting to me that Satan's sharpest tool is perfectly suited for our most natural tendencies. So get this. My natural tendency without a gospel lens is to doubt. His natural tendency is to lie and to deceive. How do you think that's going to end? right? It's not going to end well. If, if you want to know a so what, a practical so what to this tendency to doubt, then I'm going to just suggest something you totally can see coming a mile away. If you're not in this book, and if you're not on your knees, if you're not trusting in God with your, with your prayers and not believing in the word of God, then you're a sitting duck for doubt. You got no shot. Because here's what I'm trying to tell you. There is supernatural power in the word of God to enforce and reinforce faith in people who in the midst of suffering go, okay, he knows what he's doing. Okay, I believe him. But if you're on your own, if you've spent, and this is how it typically goes in a, in a, in a person's life is things are cool and great. Everybody's healthy. Kids are happy, making lots of money. All good, all good. I'll get to it maybe sometime later. I'll, I'll go to church when I'm feeling like it. Mother's Day, that's when I'm going to church. 
And then the crisis hits. And you don't remember what God said. And you don't know the power of, of these true things that fan faith in, in difficult circumstances. And you're a sitting duck for unbelief. And if that's you, listen to these words. These are just a sampling, a small sampling of what God has promised for us that never change regardless of how you think, okay? Listen to this. 1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called the children of God, children of God, and that's what we are. That's what John says. Ephesians 2, Paul says, because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. If you just are checking out the sequence of that particular story, you are loved when you were dead. So you are not a part of the love story. Whatever you do doesn't affect his love for you. Get that. Get that. That's important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation, no struggle has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I've read this to you so many times, but it's, it's, the, it's the best section I know of in the scriptures. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, what shall we say then? And he's just got done explaining salvation, how sinners can be made right with God. And he concludes, what shall we say then to this wonderful story of the, of the gospel? Who can be against us if God is for us? Who can bring any charge against us, regarding about what we, regardless of where we are in our life? Who's going to condemn us? Who will separate us from him? And this is what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, sounds like a storm, shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's true. Listen, if we are by nature, by natural order, doubters, and Satan is by nature a deceiver and a liar, and you put those things those two things together, what do you think is going to happen in storms when you don't remember this? It's not that Satan wins. It's not that his words or his lies are true. You'll believe it. That's the problem. And you will ask the question, Jesus, don't you care if I perish? And there'll be a doubt. Like you're really wondering if he's good, he's good for you. And that's, that's why we kind of line up with the disciples. One last thing we have in common with them. We have a very small faith and Jesus knows it, knows it and he loves us anyway. <laughs> Do you hear that? We have a small faith and he knows it and he loves us anyway. Matthew says in his account that Jesus' question to them wasn't about no faith, it was about small faith, okay? E either way, that's the question. And you hear Jesus ask that question. You have no faith. And what we would typically do, what spiritual, like religious people would do is run off to go, okay, here's what I need to work on. The object lesson of this story is to go and work on my faith and to make my faith strong so that when things happen, I'll be okay. And there is a part truth to that. Like you should know your Savior and you should know the gospel and you should know his promises that superabound over all the lies. Got it, got it. But I want you to get the point of this story, that Jesus rescued the men even though they didn't believe. 
Here's the problem. Sometimes we think God wants to respond to our goodness, and I'm just trying to tell you that God responds in spite of your badness. It was the love of Jesus that compelled him to rescue the men, not their faith, not their strong faith, not at the moment when the storm happened. Like Jesus has got us. He's taking care of us. He won't let us drown. Jesus loved them anyway. So if you're here today and you're struggling, if there's some circumstance you're going through that's just kicking your butt, you're alone, you're lonely, you're scared, whatever it might be, you might be confused, here's what you have to remember. He knows, he loves, he cares. He will never let you down. He can't. It's against his nature. Smile. Okay. He can't drop the ball. So I guess the point of every story, every narrative in the Gospels, there's there's a point in which I I think there's things that we need to focus on in our own life, but the preeminent response to every one of these narratives is be impressed with Jesus. Be impressed with a Savior. Marvel at his love. Marvel at his faithfulness. And watch what he can do with trials to grow us in the midst of it over time to transform us into, into Jesus. And I don't really care. To be honest with you, let's, let's just say that some of you work really, really hard at faith and really, really hard at understanding these things so that you can be bulletproof this side of heaven. I just want you to know this. When you get there, we won't be celebrating that. We'll be celebrating him. Get it? The whole point of these storms, no matter how you deal with them, is that he's faithful to you. He started a work that he'll finish in you. Now, I would love for you to love that. I'd love for you to know more of that. I'd love for you to see these trials and these storms and not be afraid of it and, and to believe that he's doing something good in it. And that's true. I want you to get that. But whether you go on this trip or not, when it all finishes, you will celebrate Christ because he is good. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for stories like this that remind us of our tendencies and your power and your character. God, we love you. We love our Savior, Jesus, who gave his life a ransom for many like us. And you will never, ever drop us. Nothing will separate us from your love. So for those in this room who feel like they're in a storm and overwhelmed, feels like the boat is filling up, who have a tendency to ask whether you care, I pray today that they would see the faithfulness that you have communicated and delivered on in the person of Christ and trust that even though we don't know how these stories are going to end up, specifically, we know generally they end up in our good and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.